man, do those, those words have a different kind of weight, don't they? But we had hoped. Like what a phrase, like what a, what a, just a handful of words that summarizes so much. You see, these two disciples are, are, are returning to where they live in, in this village of Emmaus because they had, they had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. Every year, Jews from all across Israel travel to Jerusalem to celebrate to Passover, to worship God. And this Passover had to have felt different because they probably heard the rumors. They're just seven miles down the road. They heard probably about Jesus' triumphal entry that we heard about last week. They heard about the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious rulers who were being told off and who the money-changing tables were overturned in the temple. Justice seemed to be returning to Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, the city of shalom, the city of God's people flourishing. Life and the world finally seemed to be on the right track, and they were looking forward to that peace. Can you imagine a stronger whiplash for the journey home? Their hopes were dashed. Everything had fallen apart. Everything that they had thought that the world was finally moving toward was murdered. You have to wonder, as they look back over their shoulder at Jerusalem, as they're trying to go home, do you think that they regretted anything? Do you think they experienced any doubt or confusion, maybe despair? I bet, I wonder if... I wonder if they saw the resurrection and the rumors about that as just wishful thinking. Maybe, maybe you really resonate with that. I, I know I do. Like, I, I lived half my life, did not grow up in the church, did not become a Christian toward the end of college. And this is what I believe for over half of my life, that the resurrection specifically, but Christianity in general, is just wishful thinking. It's a psychological crutch for people who wanted to avoid reality. And I don't blame anybody for that because reality is harsh. It's full of death. But we don't put our heads in the sand, and that's what it felt like to me. It felt like too fantastical to get your hopes up. And besides, what difference does Easter make anyway? Because we, it's not like you can see Jesus right now. We say he's alive, but where? Right? If that is something that you would all wrestle with, or maybe you didn't until I verbalized it, and you're like, actually, no, that's a really good question. Now, I am wrestling with that. Thanks, Brett. Whether you are just asking that question or you have wrestled with it your entire life, the road to Emmaus is that journey. It's the journey of asking that question, but also finding its answer in at least four deeper journeys that mirror and reflect and are part of the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus and then back again. So I'm going to talk about those four journeys this morning. The first is this. The first is the disciples' journey from being slow of heart to having burning hearts. Let me reread verses 25 through 27 again to refresh our memory. It says, And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then if you jump down to verse 32, it says that the disciples said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he hoped 
while he opened to us the scripture. That, that heart burning, that's the rekindling of hope. That's the rekindling of something that they thought had died the week before. You see, Cleopas and his traveling companion, that we don't, they're unnamed in here, but we think that it might have been his wife Mary um, from somewhere else in the New Testament, or it could have just been a, another traveling companion of some kind. They're, either way, they're Jewish. That means that they knew the Old Testament like the backs of our hands. Jesus didn't give them any more new info about the Old Testament than he gave them, or than, than, than they gave him new info about the Passion Week and what he went through. None of that information was new. What was new that he offered was a lens for understanding both the Old Testament and what had happened the week before. And that lens was one of the necessity of suffering. Let me put it this way. Last week, uh, it, while setting up communion, I said that um, the same crowds that were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem with, by shouting Hosanna, then yelled, crucify him, less than a week later. Why? How does a cheering crowd go from a cheering crowd to a mocking mob? Well, it's because they expected a messianic king of kings, a messianic lord of lords to rescue them from the political and economic circumstances that were being under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They didn't have an imagination big enough to fathom that that same king of kings and lord of lords might also be the great physician who is intent on healing his people more than managing their symptoms. You see, like the disciples... We are slow to believe, we're slow of heart in a Messiah who saves through suffering because we first want to be saved from suffering. Let me say that again. We are slow to believe in a Messiah who saves through suffering because we first want to be saved from suffering. This is something we can really identify with, isn't it? You've heard the, the parable of the, the drowning man, right, before like, it, it goes like this. That there's a man who who's, uh, the whole area was, was going through a flood, and so he goes up onto the roof of his house, and he's praying for God to rescue him. He's praying fervently, and while he's praying, a rowboat comes up, and the man in the rowboat says, hey, jump on in. I, I, I'll, I'll rescue you. I'll take you to safety, and he says, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm praying that God would rescue me. He's going to rescue me. Well, he says, okay, shakes his head and goes away. And then a motorboat comes up. Same, same conversation. God, I'm praying for God to rescue me. And finally, a helicopter flies overhead, drops a rope ladder down and says, grab the ladder. We're here to rescue you and take you to safety. And he says, shouting, of course, over the rotor noise, um, no, I'm praying that God would rescue me. He dies. He goes to heaven. He goes to God. He's like, God, why... Why didn't you rescue me? I was praying. I had faith. I was believing strongly that you were going to rescue me, and you never did. And God said, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. Did you need a neon sign too? I say this because we, we can memorize whole swaths of Scripture. We can know all of the information therein, but if we insist that Easter Sunday come before or apart from Good Friday, we will miss rescue staring us in the face. 
The second journey that is, these disciples were on is the journey from blind eyes to being, having blind eyes to being open-eyed. Let me reread verses 28 to 31 again. Says they drew, as so they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, there's a lot going on here that's super interesting one thing is really obvious and one thing is really subtle. The subtle thing, did you catch it? Did you catch the bait and switch? The disciples invite him to stay with them. The word used to stay with them, that says to stay with them, and so he went to stay with them. That staying is the word we also use and translate as abiding. He said, abide with us. And Jesus, it says, abided with them. But then... Just as that finished, it says, Luke says that Jesus then starts functioning as the host. They invite him as hosts, but the very next scene, once they get inside the house, Jesus takes over and takes the reins. He is the one who blesses and breaks the bread. That's not jarring for us, but for Luke's original audience, who's like the, the rules and the values and the, the, the culture of hospitality was so thick, this would have been jarring. Why is that significant? Well, as, as descendants of the Enlightenment, as 21st century Westerners, we think that to know something is to acquire sufficient information about it. Right? We think that if we read a book, any book, even Scripture, for example, that acquiring and imbibing that information is the same thing as knowing something or someone. But what we just saw right, is that Jesus connected all the dots. He mapped out Scripture and helped them to see it as it was intended and to see Him in Scripture, and they still didn't recognize Him. It was only after they came, that came only after asking Jesus to abide with them, and he took over as their host. What I'm trying to say this is that, and this is what Luke is implying, is that there is no knowing Jesus without abiding in his hospitality. There is no knowing Jesus without abiding in his hospitality. Now, if, if it is hard to hear that Jesus rescues us through suffering instead of from suffering, that may actually, this might even be harder to hear. Right? Because we want to be our own hosts, do we not? We want to be our own savior. We, we, we are happy for God to serve and maybe even bring us dessert. That would be awesome, actually. But we tell him, hey, hey Jesus, I don't need you for this part. I got this. As if that's what it was ever about. To enjoy and abide in Jesus' hospitality isn't having him do crap for us. It's an enjoying and abiding in his hospitality. That's what it means to know him. Because the problem is, when we don't, if that is not our posture, if our posture is to just either know enough or to, to have enough faith that Jesus will do enough for us, the problem is, is that when we are insufficient hosts, when we become hungry or we don't have enough to give and we are in the midst of suffering, then we are then surprised by it, 
are we not? We experience God as uncaring or absent despite him holding out the bread that he has just blessed and broken and offered himself to us. Thankfully, I mean, I'm with you in this, right? We all do this, but thankfully, he interrupts us. He interrupts our best laid plans and he invites himself along for the journey anyway. And because Jesus is, is actually on a journey in this passage as well. It's not just the disciples. And Jesus' journey in the same passage that we just read is from wandering stranger to welcoming host. From wandering stranger to welcoming host. You see, in, the, in verses 28 through 21, Luke is hyper-focusing on this weird progression, almost simultaneous progression of events, right? He blesses and breaks the bread, then immediately there's an and right between it. Like it's, it's like boom, boom, and boom, and boom. That's the rhythm of it and the speed of it. He breaks and blesses the bread. The disciples' eyes were opened. The disciples recognized Jesus, and then Jesus disappears. Okay, first of all, let's just recognize the humanness of this moment, because if if I'm in their shoes and have been walking not just one mile, but seven miles with Jesus, I'd be like, that was you the whole time? I have some questions. Can you solve the problem of pain for me? Can you help me understand where were you in this part of my life? Like, I had so many questions, and it kind of feels like Jesus and disappearing, just kind of sneaking out the back door because he knows those questions are coming, right? Maybe that's just me, Okay. But who guests, who, who ghosts their guests like Jesus does in this moment, right? Right, who does that? What is with this Houdini impersonation, okay? That is not an irrelevant question. This is why we do a Q&A, because these are actually very good questions. It is a stunningly important question. Why did Jesus disappear? When the disciples go back to Jerusalem, and it says that they, they say that did when he was opening the scriptures, did our hearts not burn within us? When he says the word opening, when he opened it, that is an active use of the word. And this word, words for opening are all throughout this passage. Opened scripture. Jesus opened scripture, an active use of the word. It says, then the disciples' eyes were opened. So the passive use of the word. Every single time there's an active word for opening, it's, it's re- referring to Jesus. Every time it's passive, it's referring to the disciples. Something's happening to them, with exactly one exception. The one exception is when it says that the disciples recognized Jesus. And the word for recognized is a word that is synonymous with seeing, but it's a very rare word in the New Testament. It's Luke's synonym for a kind, a special kind of seeing that is seeing fully or truly. It is seeing through the eyes of faith, not just merely human eyes. It is apprehending something and appreciating and seeing something for the first time. See, Jesus disappeared because knowing him is no longer limited to those who are in physical proximity to him. He disappeared because knowing him is no longer limited to those who are in physical proximity to him. The wandering stranger 
has become the welcoming host. And he is now recognized through the hospitality of his people as they gather under and through his word to enjoy his table, his hospitality together. It's the church. See, I'm I'm not just picking this up out of the blue or out of thin air like Jesus appeared to the disciples. This is, this comes, Jesus himself ex- explicitly said this. He described this moment in John 16 when he said, in a little while, you will see me no longer. I will disappear. And again, in a little while, you will see me. He's referring to his return. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament on you know, on the road to Emmaus, as they were, but the world will rejoice. That's Acts chapter 1, by the way. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will be Rejoice, they will burn, and no one will take your joy from you. The birth that Jesus is talking about is the birth of the church. Easter Sunday is the first day of the new creation. Just as Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to their own nakedness and sin after they ate ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, these two disciples ate from the bread of life. And their eyes were open to, to recognize Jesus as he truly is and was. And now that ordinarily happens in the body and bride of Christ that is the church. The whole world then is, is then invited to enjoy his hospitality and, and experience resurrection rescue. I was texting with a friend who's a pastor and who, he happened to be preaching on the same passage and he was using this story as an illustration in his sermon, and I'm going to use it in mine. He said, I have a friend who, became, who, before she became a Christian, she worked at a bar. One night, there was a group of Christian women at the bar together, and she knew that they were Christian because she had become friends with some of them and learned that they all knew each other and went to the same church. And then one woman walked in and was devastated, crying, lamenting, and my friend leaned over the bar to one of the women and asked, what, what happened? And she was told that she just had a miscarriage. She said she watched these women very intently as they circled around her and started caring for the suffering one. She told me that it was, this is like what happens with wild horses. When a wild horse gets injured, the other horses circle around it and the back legs, with the back legs facing out to protect the wounded horse from the attacks of wolves and other predators. And they stay there for as long as it takes until the injured horse heals or dies. But either way, they absolutely refuse to let anything else hurt them. And she says, she told my friend, this is what I saw that night. And so I asked the women, can I come to your church? Supernaturally, supernaturally transformed and nourished by Jesus' hospitality, the church invites and welcomes all wandering strangers to abide in Jesus and savor resurrected rescue. This, by the way, is why our church is named The Table. 
because we believe that we have a divine host whose generosity and hospitality is so sacrificial, he gave himself up for us and to us. And in his hospitality, we are empowered to be a hospitable presence in the world to the degree that he gifts and enables and equips us to do so. Now, in saying that, I am very aware that whether you are a Christian or maybe even not a Christian, that the church being where hope is found is not great news. Can we just be honest? Because, because let's be fair, Jesus is often very unrecognizable in and through his church. We contribute to brokenness at least as much as we seem to contribute to shalom. That includes this church, by the way. We are not any different in that regard. But I want you to hear this, that to say that the church is the table where hope is feasted upon is not to, confuse, is not to be confused with eating the table itself, right? We should not, let me put it this way, should we not expect that hope is found most regularly where grace is most desperately needed? If we did not need grace, if the church did not need forgiveness, if the church did not need mercy, if the church was not just as broken as the world in so many ways and on so many levels, what hope would there be in that grace? Our hope is not the church any more than the disciples' hope was Jerusalem. That's just where hope is found. Okay. And this gets to our last journey. And I'm going to jump into the Q&A, so if you have, text, if you have questions that you want to text in, definitely do so, but don't miss this last journey, because the last journey is our journey in reading this passage this morning. And it's our journey from the death of faith to a life in hope. You see, it's not just the road itself or even the destination that is important in this passage, it's the direction of travel. See, the road is to Emmaus, but it is away from Jerusalem. I said a moment ago that Jerusalem means, literally translated, city of peace, right? Even though the city of peace is not necessarily a peaceful city always, right? But it is a, the road to Emmaus is the road away from we were hoping. It's the road away from we had hoped. The disciples are walking away from, therefore, faith away from God's people, away from where hope himself was shamed, reviled, and crucified on Good Friday. And they were walking toward human consolation and toward um, circumstantial relief from suffering. So when they turn back to Jerusalem, it's not just to relay information, like, guys, check it out, we saw Jesus. Like, that would have been enough. What this is what this is representing is a return toward hope resurrected. Let me put it this way. There's a fantastic book uh, called Sacred Fire. And in that book, there is this um, incredible, it's a little bit longer of a quote. It's going to be on the screen. I hate reading long quotes, but I hate also uh, not saying it as well as what's quoting, what I'm quoting. Uh, the book says this, Luke's central point in this story is that in our journey of discipleship, we will any number of times have to undergo a certain dynamic of crucifixion and resurrection in our faith. Our vision of faith and hope will be, cru will be crucified and humiliated even. God, Christ, and the church, as we understand them, 
will die in our experience. In the discouragement that ensues, we will be tempted to walk away from our faith, our church, our hope, our Christ, and our God towards some place of, as he implies, merely human consolation. But somewhere on that road, as we walk toward consolation, Christ will appear in a new guise, and we will be unable initially to recognize him. Eventually, however, that encounter will restructure our imagination and our faith so we will recognize Christ in a new and much deeper way. And that recognition will turn us away from the place of consolation, Emmaus, and send us back to our dream of faith and our church, Jerusalem. Thank Christ that he interrupts our spiritual journey every bit as much as he interrupts Cleopas and his traveling companion's journey geographically. Our vision as a church called The Table is that we exist to become the embodied hospitality of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. The word there, become, is so important. We exist to become the embodied hospitality of Jesus because we too are on our way back to Jerusalem. We too are, back, are on our way back to a resurrected hope with resurrected hope as both our guide and, yes, sometimes our ambulance stretcher. We, too, have to repent. We have to return. By the way, that's what the word repent means. It means to turn away from something and turn towards something. It means to turn away from merely human consolation in Emmaus and to turn toward the city of peace because that's where the prince of peace is found. And we have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again as the disciples returned themselves. And so, if you are a, a wandering stranger yourself, welcome. <laughs> Taste and see that the Lord is good. Please hold us, this church, accountable, accountable to be the God's inviting guests. I pray that you recognize our divine host among us even through and in the midst of our, our meager hospitality ourselves, because let's be real, like you still have to pay for the food truck. <laughs> we got him here. Jesus paid for your rescue. This is the incredible thing about Easter Sunday, though. This is what, when, when Jesus in John 16 is saying that, that something is born at, at his resurrection, and then he's describing the church, what is amazing about that is it shows us that even this church, as small as we are, as jacked up and broken as we are, as misguided and exhausted and burnt out as we are, he multiplies our hospitality just as he multiplied loaves and fed 5,000. He multiplies meager widow's offerings to become an inheritance any king is envious of. That is not because there's anything particularly special about this church in what or how we do things apart from the risen Lord and Savior who is in our midst doing those things. Even here, our welcoming host can be recognized, apprehended, celebrated, and enjoyed, not because we are sufficient as hosts ourselves, because we're not, 
but because our welcoming host is alive in and among his people, his church. And here is where Jesus is seen. My question that I had, what difference does Easter make? Jesus is alive, but where is he? Welcome. That welcome, that's him. That is grace. That is the difference Easter makes. He is risen. Yes. Okay. You have no questions this morning. Okay. Let me pray, and uh, Danny and the band will come back up and lead us in worship. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm going to be honest and say that if I were you, I would not have made the church where your resurrected hope is found. That feels like a massive responsibility and a huge, huge task that we are not worthy of. And that's accurate. That's actually true. But every time that we say that you are risen and that you are risen indeed, I pray that with that would come an awareness that you supernaturally transform and multiply a hospitality because there is a God around here somewhere. You are alive and you are at work in and through your people and that we are your joy, that, you, that we are what you died for. And in your resurrection on Easter Sunday, what we celebrate is that you are no longer, your, your ministry is no longer limited to your physical proximity because your physical proximity is anywhere and everywhere your church is. Lord, hallelujah, amen, and thank you for an unfathomable amount of grace. We pray all this, Lord, in your name, amen.